Matthew chapter number five is where we'll be tonight. We've been on our journey through the <coughs> Bible lands for the last several months, and, and we got to the Mount of Beatitudes uh, last week in the New Testament, and so I decided to camp there for a while, so we can say this is uh, part of the Saint, where saints have trod series if we want to, but we're going to just stay there and go through these uh, Beatitudes first, and then on through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount before we uh, move on to something else. I, I think it'll be helpful to us. I believe it because it's the Word of God. And uh, wherever the Word of God is, it has the potential to make us a lot better than we used to be. <clears throat> I'm going to preach tonight on the positivity of a poor spirit. The positivity of a poor spirit. <clears throat> I lived in Washington, 1967. That was before some of your parents were born. <laughs> 1967, I went there to make my fortune working in the apple orchards. <laughs> Made all the money I needed that, uh, that summer working in the orchards, picking cherries and thinning apples and peaches. And made enough to uh, buy a 59 Chevy. And so that was, to me, that was the, the whole ambition of life was to own a 59 Chevy at that time. So I, I got it. But when there's two friends and, and me, we were living in a house in the middle of the orchard, and we'd look out the window every day and see this rather large mountain. At least it was large to us because we grew up in Izzard County where they call them mountains, but they're just hills, you know. And so we get in the Cascades there, and they had some real mountains, not as big as the Rockies, not snow, snow peaks. I mean, they've got some snow peaks in Washington, but where we live there at the edge of the orchard, uh, the Cascades were just more like foothills, but they were pretty tall and pretty steep. We decided we were going to climb one of them one day. And, uh, and I told those guys, I said, I think these are going to be steeper than what y'all are thinking because they're used to deer hunting in Izzard County, you know, and getting to the top of a hill in five minutes. I said, I think that thing's a lot bigger than you think it is. Well, we got halfway up the mountain, and we were about tuckered out. And we decided we are just going to turn around and go back. That's too far up there. And so just as we got about halfway up, we discovered something we hadn't seen. And there was a, it was like a little, a little river about, uh, oh, half as wide as this platform. It was like a little river. Uh, it was made out of concrete. It was a concrete ditch, concrete and stones. And nice cold water flowing swiftly down through that thing, just going along the side of the mountain. And it went as far as you could see and went around the bend. And you can look up the other way where it came from, and it went around the bend up there. And so we stopped there and, you know, fooled around with the water a little bit. It was fairly swift, and it was about probably that deep. And uh, we played in that cool water for a little while. And we didn't know until later when we got down, we talked to the orchard owner and found out what it was. It was, a, it was an aqueduct that fed the water to the orchard in the Kashmir Valley. And all those orchards had sprinklers hooked up to that aqueduct and uh and those just the gravity feed off of that mountain man they would shoot that water way out there in the orchards and they kept their orchards lush and green and well watered and those peach trees and apple trees pear trees are all loaded with fruit really really look nice the christian lie can be compared somewhat to that there's a lot of people who try to live more like a christian and sometimes they meet up with their character in that ordeal and their character just doesn't give them enough power to go on through and live the victorious, blessed Christian life. 
and like that aqueduct fed those orchards and made them lush and green and fruitful, that water came from up on the side of the mountain in that aqueduct. But that was not a source in itself. It went around the bend and up to higher mountains, and it was fed by melting snow and glaciers and a head spring at the very top. And it ran year round. The Christian life and being blessed and victorious, having joy and blessedness, our life can be fruitful like that orchard if we're connected up to the aqueduct. But that aqueduct is just a go-between between here and the source. And that source is the Word of God from God Himself. And that's kind of going to be what we're looking at tonight. And let's begin reading in chapter 5 once again of Matthew chapter 5 verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we'll focus on that very third verse. But let's read through the rest of them so we see the Beatitudes are an introduction to Jesus' most famous I suppose, and first sermon that he preached when he walked on the earth, the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 4 says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Father, we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, anoint our ears with the ability to hear in a spiritual way that we might be connected to that source that flows from heaven through the word of God, that we might be strengthened for this blessed life. Lord, help us tonight to see what it means to be poor in spirit. And we'll just thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Each beatitude... Somebody says it's the B attitudes, <laughs> what we ought to be. Each beatitude pronounces a blessing on the one who possesses it. And it means to be joyful, to have an inner, an inner joy, more than just an ordinary happiness, but to be blessed, blessedness, beatitudes, and a deep joy for the person who is connected to God through that source that only he can give. How many are there of these blesseds? How many beatitudes are there? Well, some would say seven. Some would say eight. Some would say nine. It depends on how you count them. I would probably say eight because verses 10, 11, and 12 actually sum up one subject, the persecution part. So blessed is he that's persecuted actually, I think, belongs to one beatitude, verses 10, 11, and 12. So I would say there's probably, probably eight of them. And 
But more important than just addressing how many of those Beatitudes there are would be to look at the content of them. It's kind of like, you know, you go into the grocery store, you ever go in there and you're looking at the stuff on the shelves and you think, man, that looks good. Uh, that looks good. Mm-hmm. Look at that brisket. Man, $80. <laughs> I can't believe they got that high. You see stuff you want and uh, you're attracted to it. And so rather than just wanting to read the label on some of those things, I'd rather just snatch them off the shelf and own them, wouldn't you? I mean, what good is it to look at a steak? I'd rather eat the thing, you know, throw it on the grill and char it and eat it. And so that's the way it is with these Beatitudes. We, we can look at them and read the labels about them and we can learn more about them, but what belongs in them and how they belong in us is even more important. How can these several Beatitudes, we'll just look at them one at a time over a course of the next few weeks but we'll just focus in on the one poor in spirit tonight but how would these benefit us as we look at them as a whole and we talked about last week when Jesus gave not just the Beatitudes but the whole Sermon on the Mount he gave it as a whole and we looked at how we could view it as a whole some people think well if you if you keep the Beatitudes or if you uh, if you follow the Sermon on the Mount, it'll save your soul. Well, no, nothing but the grace of God will save your soul. But these are rather attributes, characteristics, or virtues of what it means to be totally surrendered to Him. And it's des- describing what is in the hearts of those who are totally sold out to God. It's describing what's in their heart. But as we look at it more closely, I think we'll see that it comes directly from the heart of God. When His heart, like that aqueduct his heart is connected to our heart and he's in control of our lives and that water the the wellspring of water of the word flows into us we'll we'll be better christians we'll be more blessed than before because that wellspring of water is flowing through us and so i guess you could say that we need this because it's not natural in the means of that you were born with it. You You weren't born with these virtues. And just because you got saved doesn't mean you have them either. But because you are saved, you have access to them. And so these come from the heart of God, but because our birth is a fleshly birth, so we need these things come through the Spirit that comes into us from the time we've been born again. Galatians chapter 5 the last part of Galatians chapter 5 speaks of the fruit of the fruit of the spirit and there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of similarity between these beatitudes and the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5 we see some very close similarities in fact if you read through the epistles of the apostle Paul you will see these beatitudes repeated now, i understand that this this was written to the Jews originally in Matthew before the cross, before the church really came into the existence like we know it today. But even though it was written to them, if he lives in our heart, it's available to us. And just like these Beatitudes, just like the, the fruit uh, of the Spirit in Galatians, it's not something that you can just will to do. You know, if I, if I say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook some chili for supper. I just make up my mind I'm going to do that. I can go in there and dig out some hamburger meat and some chili powder and some, maybe some tomatoes and throw it together and I can make some chili. 
I can do that if I will to do it. But you can't do that with the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something you do from within by decision yourself. The fruit of the Spirit, which is closely resembling the Beatitudes, it only happens to us as the Spirit produces fruit in us. It's like Brother Paul's a couple inches taller than I am, right? A couple. If I say, you know, I want to be as tall as Brother Paul, and I walk over here, I'm going to be as tall as Brother Paul. Watch me get taller. Do I grow any? I can grunt and groan and stretch all I want to, but it's not going to grow me, is it? And neither can we by decision of ourselves that I want more of the fruit of the Spirit. I want to live by these Beatitudes, and so I will to do it from within myself, and it's going to happen. No, not any easier than me increasing my stature by willing to do so. It's as we surrender to God and we become servants of His that are surrendered in heart, then He begins to grow the Spirit in us. The Beatitudes are not something that we They're not the way to get there. They're a measurement of what we are. Does that make sense? What we find in Beatitudes is not a goal that we intend or that we can forcefully do ourselves, but it's a measurement God makes of us to see where we are. When I taught at the Bible college down at Jacksonville, I would give midterm tests. Don't students just love tests? Brother Chad, <laughs> they just love those midterm tests. I didn't give them a midterm test to teach them anything. A test is not a teaching tool. It's a measuring tool. And by looking at the Beatitudes, it's not something that we use to raise ourselves up a notch. It's something that we look at in Scripture to see where we are, how we measure ourselves. So if you look at the Beatitudes as we go through these in the next few weeks, you can say, yeah, I see where I'm a little short there. <laughs> well, what are we going to do about it? Another lesson we can learn from the Beatitudes is the difference between God's people and the world's people. People who are filled with the Spirit of God and living for God and are living in His blessings, they're blessed, living a victor victorious life. Different in the world. The world has a sort of happiness, but it comes and goes. And at the end of this life, it's going to go. <laughs> but for God's people who live in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, that joy is an abiding peace, joy, a happiness that is not fleeting like the world's happiness. And the virtues of the Sermon on the Mount, while it's maybe primarily intended in this passage toward the Jews for the coming millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign, and I believe that that's what will be required of all of us who are living in the millennium, Jews, church, everybody will be living according to these in the millennial reign of Christ. But I guess we could raise the question, is it for us right now? If this was intended by Jesus to show those Jews how he would 
maintain his kingdom and what he would require of his subjects. Well, see, in Matthew chapter 12, remember the Jews did commit blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. They rejected Christ over and over and over again. They rejected Him. They were filled with pride of religion and pride of race. And boy, they didn't want Him coming along and messing everything up. And they finally rejected Him. And at the end of chapter 12, <clears throat> we see something real interesting. Let's turn over there. You're already in Matthew. Turn over to chapter number 12. The last Two verses. Verse 49. And he, Jesus, stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my brother, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. That's the family of God, those who are saved and living according to his will. Now look at chapter 13, the first verse. Now here's where he turns away from the rulers of Israel, those who have finally rejected him, he said, okay, you want to be Burger King religionists? Have it your way. And he turned, and in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, in the same day, Jesus went out of the house. Now that went out of the house, there's some, some uh, Bible teachers say when he went out of the house, man, he left the temple worship and everything. He turned his back on it. He said, okay, Jews, you have your religion. Stick with it. I'm going in a different direction. And that's when he turned to the church. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. Now watch this. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he uh, went into a ship and sat. Now here, have him sitting down doing his preaching again. Boy, I'm getting attracted to that. I've got to get me a stool. <clears throat> and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold and some sixtyfold and some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, now, who's got ears to hear? It's not the Jewish leadership, not the rulers of Israel. They don't have ears to hear. They've already decided they don't want to hear. Can I just tell you that somebody that's made up their mind not to listen, they're not going to hear anything you say. You can witness to somebody. You can pour your heart out to them and you can try to tell them how they need to be saved, tell them how to be saved. But if they've got their mind made up and they've got their ears turned off, it doesn't matter what you say. They're not going to be convinced because they've decided not to hear. Well, that's what the Jewish rulers did. And he says, he who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Well, who's that going to be? That's going to be the ones that he's turned to in the church age. Now verse number 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Well, that's a good question. Why are you speaking in stories, Lord, that they don't really know what that means? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. What's he saying? 
He said, those Jews, those Jewish rulers, they don't want to hear. And so they're not, I'm not going to say anything they can't understand. They made up their mind. They've turned their back forever. They've committed the unpardonable sin. So I'm done with them. And so whatever I speak, I'll explain to you. He's saying to his disciples, I'll explain to you, but not to them. I'm done with them. Notice also in verse 11, he talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. He, turned, he offered the Jews the kingdom, but when they committed the sin, the unpardonable sin, he turned from them and turned to the common people and he said, I'm going to speak to you about the mysteries of the kingdom. He offered a real literal kingdom to Israel when he came. When they rejected him as their Messiah, as their king, as their leader of Israel, he turned from them. And now he's offering a kingdom to those who believe on him. Now that's not to rule out the coming kingdom. Israel has been promised a kingdom and it will not be reneged on. That'll just be in the future somewhere. There's a literal thousand year reign and all of the saved will be enjoying that kingdom along with the Jews who get saved. But he says, verse 13, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing not, seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And then he goes on and elaborates on it. But the reason I read that to you was so that we understand that there is a mystery form of the kingdom in effect right now. They rejected him as king. He will come back again, second coming, and he will establish himself as king. There will be Jews saved and Jews going into the millennial, millennial reign for a thousand years. But right now there is a mystery form of the kingdom that's in your heart. Well, let me ask you this. Is he your king? Yeah, he's, he's a king. Well, where is he king? He's not king, <laughs> he's not king in the government of Cersei. He's not king in the government of Arkansas or any nation in the United States. He's not king here. Not on this earth. So where is he king? It's got to be in the heart. If he's our king and there is this kingdom where he reigns, didn't he say they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth? So if there is a kingdom going on right now, it's in our heart. And so if he has these guidelines and virtues that he expects in that thousand-year reign that will be coming, then wouldn't it make sense that we're who saved, we're just as sure as you're sitting there in this church house today, just as sure as you're sitting here, you'll be in that kingdom. If you're saved, you're going to be there. And so if we're going to be there and we're, all, we're going to be living under the rule of Jesus then, under the kingdom, virtues, laws, and beatitudes, then would it be against his desires to have us living that way already in this age? They're valid now for this heart kingdom. Well, let's, let's move through this a little quicker. Let's ask this question. What is the meaning of poor in spirit anyway? Let's, let's get down to the, the nitty-gritty of the poor in spirit. What is the poor in spirit? What does that mean? 
It's significant that he mentioned this first in the whole list of Beatitudes because I believe it's because if we don't possess this first one, then the rest of them is going to be out of reach. It's kind of like climbing a, a stairway. If you don't get to the first step, you're not going to make it to the top step. So we've got to take a step at a time. And the poor in spirit are the very first ones on this step. If we don't get past this one, we're not going to be on the other steps either. They're not, those other steps are not even considered till we get past this entrance. Let me just say that I think we grasp it in a, in a nutshell when we're talking about being full of these virtues, whether it be the Beatitudes or the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Being poor in spirit means being empty so you can be filled. Poor in spirit. I made some coffee and I, I, I roast my own coffee beans and grind them myself, make my own coffee. Use, I, I manually brew my coffee. Instead of putting, making an electric coffee pot or something that does it automatically, I heat my water on the stove, and then I pour my coffee grounds into a, a cone, a dripper. Uh, mine's a Hario V60, and I've got a bee house. It's a flat-bottom dripper, but it sits on top of a mug or a, or a carafe, and you put your grounds in there, and they're just exposed open, you take your tea kettle and pour the hot water right over the top of it, going in a circle, round and round and round, and making sure you hit that center a lot, and then round and round and round. It takes about three or four minutes. I brew a, a stainless steel mug that holds about three of the regular small cups, about 16 ounces, and I was brewing some coffee, <laughs> and I started that bloom phase where you first pour the coffee on the grounds, they swell up. I call it bloom, and it, it, the grounds will just kind of dome up. And I started pouring the coffee on there to get it to bloom. And when I did that, coffee started running out the side of my mug, running down the side of the mug. <laughs> Why is this happening? It's not going in the mug. I lifted up the dripper and looked in my mug. It was full of water. I had filled it full of hot water to take the chill off the mug, and then I was going to make the coffee in the mug like I always do. But I forgot to dump the hot water out. And so all of my good coffee is just splashing out and running down the sides of the mug. That, that's almost an unpardonable sin when you spill coffee. You know why the coffee didn't go in the mug? It was full of something else. To be, for, to be poor in spirit means that we empty ourselves out so we can receive that flow of heavenly water the washing of the water by the word that comes into us. And if there's something already filling us, we can't receive what God wants to give us. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean not having any money. Now you can be poor in spirit and not have any money or you can be poor in spirit and have bukus of money. But if you're full of something, a desire for money, if, you, if, if money is your thing in life and you'd rather have money than to have the things of God, you'd rather have money than to have the blessings and the victorious life that God offers you, then you're full of self-desire for the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not evil, but the desire, the lust, the love of money is evil. If we love to be like the world around us, if 
we want to be just like the clowns who are running the world, <laughs> then we don't have room for what God wants to put in us. Poor in spirit means you just pour yourself out. I mean, it's poor, being poor in spirit is when you're, when you're flat on your back and you're looking up at God and saying, man, I realize I'm worthless. Without you, I'm nothing. And so I need all of you I can get. That's poor in spirit. It's kind of like the guy, you know, kind of like the guy that uh, he was in a theater and the, and the usher came over to him. This guy sprawled out laying across about three, three rows of seats in the theater. And the usher came over and said, Mr., what are you doing? And he just groaned and never said anything. He said, if you don't get up off of those, you can't take up but one seat. He said, if you don't get off of those other seats, I'm going to call the manager. And the guy just laid there and groaned. And Usher said, that's it then. So he went and got the manager and brought the manager in there. And the manager said, what are you doing on those seats? Get off of there. The man just groaned again. And so the manager called the police. The cop came and the cop walked up to the guy still laying on those seats, flat on his back, just looking up. He said, what's your name? He said, Sam. He said, where'd you come from, Sam? He said, from the balcony. You know, Sam didn't have the ability to do anything. <laughs> he needed help. <laughs> you know, before we can be filled with anything from heaven, we have to realize we need help. We have to realize we're worthless without him. And we don't have anything to bless him with, but he's got everything to bless us with. Poor in spirit. Some people think that that there's some virtue in being penniless, you know. Now, I believe in being generous, giving things away. If it, wasn't, if it wasn't for my wife, if it wasn't for me, my wife would have given everything away and we'd be living out with the homeless camp right now. She gives away everything. I mean, she gives away my clothes, my shoes, you know, I don't know what all. She's a giver. She's more generous than I am. I believe in being generous and a giver. But if I gave away everything that I had, that wouldn't make me rich in spirit. There's no virtue in being penniless. And that's not what that phrase means, poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not going out and joining some monastery and sitting down uh, cross-legged in front of the gate of a, of a wall and, and doing that uh, chant. You know, it's not going to gain us. That guy that does that, he's not going to be closer to God than the guy that's got a million dollars if their hearts are the same. It doesn't mean that there's virtue in the state of material poverty and there's no virtue in being wealthy. If we're spiritually rich, we don't have to have money. If we have money and not spiritually rich, then we're poor. There's a lot of self-promoting preachers today that they think they're pretty much of a hot shot. I mean, the guy that can, the guy that can draw the biggest crowds. I'm not against homiletics. I've taught homiletics and I've practiced homiletics and I read homiletics and I want to be a better, pa better pastor, a better preacher than, than before. I always want to continue to do better. 
But just being a good orator, no matter who the guy is, is not making him more valuable in the sight of God. Being a seminary professor, knowing everything that the Bible has to say, doesn't necessarily make a guy closer to God, not making him rich. In fact, if he thinks he's somebody, preacher, professor, or whoever, if we think we're somebody, we're not poor in spirit and therefore not closer to God. Before we gain anything else of the fruit of the Spirit or the Beatitudes, we have to be poor in spirit. That means realizing how valueless we would be without Jesus Christ. And that's not to say that the guy who falsely depreciates himself is poor in spirit either. Have you ever been around somebody who just, he's just always telling them, down on himself, I'm the worst guy in the world, I'm the most terrible. That's not what it's talking about. I know some guys that just run themselves down all the time. Now, I'm not a self-esteem proponent, but I am a proponent of self-worth. I'm only worth something because of what's in me, and that came from heaven. Because of him, I believe in self-worth. And that means you don't want to be like Uriah Heep in the novel of David Copperfield. Uriah Heep was, oh, I am the most lowly person on the face of the earth. It didn't make him that way. It made him a jerk. Because he was falsely proclaiming, proclaiming, proclaiming himself to be poor in spirit when he was lifted up with pride and arrogance and deception. And if I try to deceive somebody, I'm not poor in spirit. I'm just a lawbreaker. And neither is aggressiveness and being overly confident, being poor in spirit. Paul was not full of self when he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves servants for Jesus' sake. Paul was not full of self when he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That makes me feel better. I told Somebody asked me a while back, uh, How do I get over being nervous when I go to the pulpit? I don't know, but if you ever find out, let me know. <laughs> I have never come to the pulpit not feeling a little bit nervous. Now, you might get a little more comfortable, a little more poised by doing it often, but if anybody ever gets comfortable coming to the sacred desk of God and it's not just a little bit fearful to them, they have gone too far and have placed too much value in themselves instead of Him. I, I face this pulpit and pick up the Word of God with some fear and trembling, and I don't want it to ever get any different. I fear Him. I respect Him. Paul was willing to be an obscure servant when he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he said, And I will gl very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. What's he saying? Uh, he's saying, I, I pour my heart out and I, I work my fingers to the bone and I, I do everything I do. I travel and I'm getting beaten up and I'm getting stoned and getting in shipwrecks because I love the people that God wants me to seek their souls. I would say he wasn't really a Joel Osteen. <laughs> 
He didn't have a stadium full of people. He preached a little handfuls of people here and there, established a few churches. <laughs> he did a great work for God, maybe the greatest missionary of all time. But he was not doing it for self, I can guarantee you. According to these verses, he was not full of pride. <laughs> if we're too full of anything except God, we won't ever be poor in spirit. I thought about Uncle Will Smith, where I grew up in Izzard County. Uncle Will was my, oh, my, my grandmother's, let's see, my grandmother's brother-in-law, I guess. Will Smith was known as quite a trickster in the community. This was back in the horse and buggy days. And Uncle Will Smith had a big watermelon patch. I mean, he, it was full of big old ripe watermelons. And, and this was days before they had street lights and things like that. Everything's dark. And this is when teenage boys like to do a few mischievous things too. <laughs> of course, they're not that way anymore now, are they? But these boys all got together, a bunch of teenage boys got together, and they said, oh, Will's, Will's watermelon patch is ripe. Let's go steal a bunch of his watermelons tonight. And they all got together, and they carried kerosene lanterns, and they got out to the edge of the fence, and they said, we better blow out our lantern. Uncle Will lives just up there a little ways. He'll see the light. They blew out the lantern, and it's so dark, no moon or anything, and they're walking up those rows between the road, and they're feeling those watermelons, and here's one. This feels like a big one. Thump, thump, thump. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's get it. And Boy, they picked up that one, and they'd go a little further, and they'd thump on another one, and they'd get it. Well, they're all kind of in a train going up through there, and they passed up one, and the voice behind said, hey, here's one. Let's get it. That looks real ripe. That's a big one. And so they picked, okay, who is that? We don't recognize his voice. <laughs> so they got, they got several watermelons, and all, they got them all up and got back out to the road and crossed over the fence, and they lit their, lit their lantern again. And when they got the lantern lit, it was Uncle Will right amongst of them, and he's the one telling them to get those biggest watermelons. He got across, and oh boy, they're in shock. They see Uncle Will's face, and Uncle Will said, okay, boys, we got these watermelons, and I've got a pocket knife. Now sit down and eat some watermelon. And I mean eat every bite of every melon. And he fed them watermelons till they puked. <laughs> I don't think they ever stole any of these watermelons ever again. They were full of watermelon. And when we're full of anything but the, the glory of heaven and the water of his word and the desire for his will, we'll never be full of him unless we're just full of him and nothing else. Well, what is scripturally involved in the poor spirit? Isaiah knew. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth in eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite, listen, he says, of him that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know who God's looking for? He's looking for the one that has a humble spirit. He's looking for the one who has a contrite spirit. He's looking for the one who does not think he's a big shot. He's looking for the one who is empty and looking to be filled. Isaiah's revelation also in Isaiah 61, uh, 6, 1 through 8. I, I don't have time to read it right now, but let's talk about the examples, a few examples of the, those who are poor in spirit. Gideon was one of them. Gideon was, he was hiding out uh, because uh, the Midianites were stealing their, stealing their grain and they were afraid to fight them. In Judges 6, 15, 
God says, I'm going to use you, Gideon, to defeat the enemy. And Gideon's hiding out. He's afraid of the enemy. And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's saying, God, you want me to go save Israel? <laughs> I'm a pipsqueak of pipsqueaks. <laughs> I can't do this. God said, you're the one I'm going to use. Now don't argue. I never want to argue with God anyway. David, in 1 Samuel 18, 18, and David said unto Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? David didn't think he was a hot shot. What about Peter, the apostle? In spite of his personality, after recognizing who Jesus was in his power, in Luke 5, 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He didn't slap Jesus on the back and say, Hey, good to see you, old buddy. No, he fell down to his knees. Paul, abandoning his own righteousness through the law, was not filled with pride. How does one change his present level then of this attribute of poor in spirit? How, how can we change? If we can't just will to do it, how do we do it? Uh, the more we read and meditate on his word, the more time we spend alone with him and let him be the one who's high and mighty and lifted up in the temple and say, oh, woe is me, oh Lord, I'm, I'm undone. I need you. Instead of going after these individual attributes and characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit or the Beatitudes, we just need to get closer to Him. And when we do that and empty ourselves, then He will flow into us. As emptying of self allows a vessel to be filled with something else, that is us when we see ourselves empty, needing the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Like that fruitful orchard in Washington. Large apples and peaches hanging off green grass under the trees because of the flow coming down from that aqueduct of above, which finds its source in a higher place. When we find our source in God alone instead of the things of the world, instead of the things that we think we can do for ourselves, when we find that we're poor in spirit and ask Him to fill us, that's where it begins. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd bless us. Lord, I pray for those Christians who would love to be closer to you and love to be able to be measured by these characteristics of the, of the Beatitudes. Lord, I pray that we would open up ourselves and just say, Lord, I'm, I'm emptying myself. That's all I can do and ask you to fill me. And for those, Lord, who are not saved, and they've been grunting and trying to groan and make themselves better people so that you would accept them. Lord, help them to understand there is no possible way to make themselves acceptable unto you but through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood willingly in our place for the sinner who had no hope of gaining heaven alone. Lord, we can't help Jesus get us to heaven. We just need to be helpless and let him do it all. Because of his death on the cross, 
If we place our faith in him, he will save those who ask. And Lord, I pray for those who are listening now who have not the promise of eternal life that they'd say, Lord Jesus, I am empty. The only thing that I have is sin and I want to exchange my sin for the salvation that you offer because of your blood that you shed on the cross of Calvary. Lord, I pray that that be the prayer of every person who's lost tonight and the prayer of every Christian who says, I just want to be closer to you, Lord. I want to be measured by the Beatitudes in a way that would be pleasing to you. 